To ship, of course. Welcome to this episode of The Ship Show, where we discuss build engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything in between. I'm your host, Paul Reed, and who's with me tonight for episode 17? Uh, this is Yusuf, at Build Scientist on Twitter and BuildScientist.com. This is Sasha, and my Twitter ID is Sasha underscore D. How's it going, guys? Super duper. Are, are you uh, are you back in the cold now, Sasha, right? It's still... I it's am. Still, it's, yeah, I, yeah, you know, I got off the plane, and I was like, oh, who turned off the heat? But... <laughs> But it, I actually haven't gotten out of my pajamas all week, so that's kind of cool. <laughs> well, we have a special treat this episode. We've put together a panel of guests who've experienced a certain specific level of DevOps and IT hell and are here to talk about their experiences and how we can all avoid that. It's a story of automation, incident response, collaboration, and full infrastructure move all in the course of a weekend. Uh, and we'll get to the intrigue right after news and views. So first up, we've got a story of PayPal switching to uh, OpenStack away from VMware. Business Insider broke the story on this. We'll link it to the show notes. Uh, what I thought it was interesting was about the particular news story was that it was sort of fact mixed in with, uh-oh, right? People are moving away from VMware, da 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 um, and, and there was talk of to what extent PayPal was actually uh, looking to, to replace their VMware infrastructure with, with OpenStack. Did you guys see this story? I saw it. I didn't read it, but can I tell you how impressed I'm going to be if they put production hardware on OpenStack? <laughs> You're such an OpenStack hater. <laughs> I am not. I love OpenStack, especially now that I'm not working with it. <laughs> I miss it. I miss it a lot, but I don't have any illusions about like clustered file systems and things with OpenStack like, either. You don't have any illusions about its warts. You know, the one thing I, I was I was reviewing this story right before the show, and it turns out at the end that the CEO of the company that uh, I, I guess is the consulting company working with them actually corrected the story, the person who talked to Business Insider, and then also talked to PayPal. So there's a little bit of intrigue about, uh, and, and apparently according to the clarifications from PayPal that uh, their OpenStack project is already in production, so it's already actually working. Interesting. Uh, but well, but I, you know, I thought the whole backpedaling about, oh, no, no, your story that we're replacing everything is not, so it's like, it's almost like VMware called PayPal is like, uh-uh, ixnay on the OpenStack A. Well, and it's not like VMware is going to go away, because I have news for anybody who doesn't know it, but OpenStack is hard work. Yeah. I mean, VMware comes with a lot of built-in functionality and things that you have to, it's like building your own house as opposed to going out and buying one in a in one of those cul-de-sac communities. <laughs> I, I'd be curious about what they're putting on this OpenStack environment. Is this all production boxes or just developer um, sandboxes? What are the, what are they putting on OpenStack? I mean, that's a really good question, and I think it's hard to tell based on the clarification that came up uh, or the correction that came up in the story. To uh, well, let's see, when was this posted? It actually doesn't say when it was posted, but. To read the initial version of the story, it's kind of like, hey, we're going to move everything. Actually, the quote is the grand vision for the project over time is they will replace all of their virtual infrastructure with OpenStack, not just PayPal, but PayPal and eBay together. But then there's the correction. So quite frankly, we don't know. Maybe that's what they really were going to do. And then, like I said, somebody called somebody and it's like, uh-uh, let's not... Let's not talk about that or, or well, you what, have to but... be careful too, because remember some people have gotten in trouble lately, publicly traded companies and things for It's true. That this kind of stuff is, is major if you're talking yeah. about moving all your hardware over to a different 
yeah. different provisioner and things like that because because yeah. it, it it affects SEC filings possibly because you know right. if it's if it's eighty thousand servers there's risk there and all kinds of stuff that's interesting on both sides too uh, SEC filings possibly for for uh, VMware and you know you bring up a really good point Sasha because they actually mentioned that in the article that VMware. It may make VMware sweat a little bit, but they have tons of uh, supporting tools and software that make that a lot easier than OpenStack. So the article actually, you know, mentions that as well. Right. I mean, there's a reason people pay for VMware as opposed to using OpenStack. And there's a reason that people use OpenStack instead of VMware, right? And it's about the money. Yeah. But your money is going somewhere either way. It's, uh, it, you know, what, what's the uh, saying? Open source is only free if your time is worthless. Right. Next up, we have a notice or a reminder, hopefully, that Ruby 1.8, I guess the latest 1.8.7, is going to be end of life. We'll link to a note from the maintainer saying, uh, we're not even doing security updates anymore. We're gonna, those are going to stop in, uh, I think he said July. June? June? Yeah. Can we have a party? Because that is going to be so awesome. <laughs> so I was going to ask, like, I, I mean, I'm trying to, you know, since I'm more of a Python person, right? Uh, and I guess my question, or, or Perl even before that, right? So, like... How old conceptual like one eight seven is that like Python one five or two o like how far back is or how painful is using one eight Ruby one eight I don't know I really don't especially compared to Python because I don't know the numbers too well yeah but um, I can tell you that a lot of the tooling that I use these days hasn't even thought about one eight seven because they weren't it didn't even uh, it wasn't even really uh, a main option when they started developing the tooling like. A lot of the stuff that I use is around Chef, so right, like Bird Shelf and stuff like that. Right, right, and so they're they're all uh, kind of one line then. Yeah, I mean, two dot O is out. So there's no excuse. Well, I just mean you know one nine is is super stable. It's been around for a couple of years. Yeah. It's, uh, you know. Exactly. There's no excuse. <laughs> no excuse. Um, so next up, we have news that uh, kind of odd news actually that uh, Massachusetts is looking at passing a new tax that might tax the cloud, which is kind of weird. The article kind of goes into some detail about it. it seems like it's a very kind of vague law, uh, but it looks like they're just looking at taxing "quote unquote" CAN software and some elements of cloud computing. Although ironically, there are exemptions for music and ebook storage. So it's kind of like they want to extract some taxes from businesses, but not so much from people, which I think is kind of interesting. So this, this this sounds like, I don't know how far back this was, it was maybe the U.S. Uh, Postal Service wanted to tax every email. Oh, right. Well, uh, was, is that an urban legend, though, or was that real? Because I know that the Senate, I believe, one of the houses of Congress was actually debating an internet tax nationwide for companies like Amazon and things like that. So I know this conversation is coming up. I think what made this story unique was that this tax was specifically about can software. And it's like, well, how do you define that? And then they talk about, well, you know, if a company has custom software and they deploy it to the cloud, but it's their own internally developed application, like, they're, are they going to tax that? It's kind of weird. They should hire a technician before they talk about this stuff out loud. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see. If this gets, if this actually goes through, and and what happens with it, it's only a proposal in the governor's budget right now. <laughs> All right. Well, last up, we have uh, news. Yusuf, you you uh, brought this to us. News that uh, a SimCity hack lets users destroy anyone's online city. What's going on there? Yeah. So apparently, uh, EA. You know, they they just recently released the latest, I guess, SimCity, and uh, a lot of it is uh, implemented in uh, in JavaScript. And apparently, um, some wily hackers basically discovered that some of that client side code could be modified 
to uh, change the behavior of some of the server-side stuff. So you could hop onto somebody's city and then literally destroy it, run a freeway or a highway right through their city, do all sorts of... (laughs) (laughs) It's like the nuclear option. Right, right. So do all sorts of crazy stuff. And uh, apparently, you know, we'll we'll put the link in the show notes, but there's a YouTube video that shows somebody actually doing that. But there's an option where uh, when you do it, it doesn't actually uh, get saved across that other person's city. So I guess you can be malicious or you can decide, no, I'm just going to around with us, but yeah, definitely kind of a interesting um, take on, on implementing games using um, JavaScript. Yeah, that is interesting. Now, does that, I mean, is this, what, I mean, the whole game's not in HTML5 and JS, right, or? No, I, uh, Is it just yeah, the online component? I think or? the online component is, yeah, I think the online component is, is, in, is in HTML5 and JavaScript, so. Well, it, it's too bad Seth isn't joining us tonight, and, and uh, you know, if, if you're listening, Seth, we, he, apparently he had a little bout of food poisoning, so our, we're, we're thinking about you and, and your lack of ability to, to eat tacos, but, um, yeah, I'm curious, I mean, SimCity, all of the technical details aside, it seems like this SimCity rollout is going to be kind of one of those game studio case studies because it just has been, seems like it's just been botched kind of yeah. at every turn. Yep. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that, this is kind of the last big egg on EA's face about it or what happens uh, in the future. And, and we'll get we'll get Seth's take uh, on Twitter, I guess, <laughs> about this story. So, uh, yeah, so next up, panel discussion with people who return from uh, a really difficult project. We'll give more details when we come back here on Welcome back to The Ship Show. I'm Paul Reed. Imagine waking up one morning to find news strewn all over the internet that your company's site and service has been hacked. Your Fortune 500 customers are starting to light up your support phone lines, and there's no telling what damage the hackers actually did. Sounds like the quintessential DevOps horror story or, or something right out of the start of the Phoenix Project. What would you do? How would you handle it? Well, for this episode, we have a panel of guests who worked the exact nightmare scenario we're talking about and are joining us to tell the tale. So join me in uh, welcoming the panel to the ship show. Joshua Timberman, Luke Chadwick, and Sam Cotler, welcome. Hi. Hello. Thank you. So, of course, I'm referring to the rubygems.org hack that was uh, due to the YAML issues in the Ruby interpreter. And so I wanted to start actually, and this was uh, publicized in the news, and I I wanted to start a little bit uh, or ask, where does the story start? How did you guys get involved? Did you get a phone call? Is there like a red phone on your desk for these sorts of things? Or uh, So I think it's actually a pretty interesting story. So I kind of had seen a bunch of tweets in the morning about the person who had kind of discovered the exploit tweeted about it, and then a bunch of people tweeted at him and were kind of like, oh, wow, this happened. And so I kind of hopped in the, the RubyGems IRC channel on Freenode and kind of just started helping out. It's kind of interesting because I, I wasn't involved with RubyGems.org at all before this happened, so it was kind of just an opportunity to get involved, and I'd been meaning to do it for a while, so I think that's, that's kind of how it got kicked off. Yeah, what about Joshua and Luke? How, how did you get involved? Yeah, um, I think my story is fairly similar to, to Sam. I was at work, and so I'm in Australia, so it was at the start of our work day rather than later in the evening. And I, I sort of realized that the, the infrastructure 
was in trouble because because of the hack and started talking to, to my boss about getting involved about it, with fixing it. All right. And uh, Josh, Josh, your same sort of situation for you where people kind of grouping around the, the IRC channel? Is that kind of where the, the problem well, was? Um, so Adam Jacob was in the IRC channel, and uh, he, I don't remember which one he was in, but he uh, saw that folks were talking about setting up the new site with automating with everything with Chef. So he pinged our in, one of our internal uh, channels and asked if anybody had cycles to to jump in and help out, and you know, I, I love chefs, so I thought I'd help out. Awesome. <laughs> okay. I did have cycles. Yeah, awesome, okay. Well, so that's actually a good place to kind of start with the story. I mean, why don't you talk a little bit about the, the infrastructure of rubygems.org? Like, you know, how many how many servers are we talking? Is it, is it all Linux? Is it CentOS or Ubuntu or both or a mix? Or what was the kind of scope of the problem you were looking at, you guys were looking at from an infrastructure size standpoint? Yeah, so so one of the really interesting problems that was that initially we didn't actually like I didn't I didn't know how a lot of the infrastructure worked and one of the funny things that we came across was like oh no one really actually realizes completely how it works and it was it wasn't automated so a lot of things were you know a quick hack to fix a problem in production and then they never really got fixed one of those situations where technical debt just continues to pile up Right, and um, and you also make hacks, and and nobody remembers the hacks. So when the machine reboots or something, it's it doesn't exactly. stick. Stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah but, you didn't lose. You lost all your shell history and everything else. You know. <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, it was it was actually really funny because part of the the struggle was stopping people from going. Oh, I want to improve this because it's it's so terrible. So it was keeping people on track of just replatforming it. And, <laughs> And we, we have a mission here, folks. We got to keep on the same page. Is that yeah? So, yeah. but but on the on the tech side, it is it's written in Rails. It uses Redis and uh, Memcache and Postgres on the back end, uh, all for kind of different things. Redis does some basic like counting and incrementing on the gem download side. Memcache is used for object caching, of course. And then Postgres is the primary data store. And it, there actually isn't that much data, which is pretty nice. The Postgres database to move over was about 7 gigs at the time, so it's probably not much larger now. Redis was also relatively small, probably like 3 gigs. And so we just started moving stuff over and, and rebuilding individual boxes. But it's, it's just basically three AWS instances. It's really not, it's not a very sweeping setup. And okay. a lot of all of the actual file hosting and and such is done on S3. So we didn't actually need to move that. Okay. Okay, so it was kind of like moving the the head front end part of the site, but a, the the back end data store in terms of the the files, the actual gem files was still yep. S3. Okay. One other component is Heroku for the uh, bundler API. Okay. So all the dependency resolution. And then did that did that actually get moved as well? Was that no. part of this? No? Okay. Okay. So that's a really good point that you brought up about kind of people trying to keep people focused on the task at hand. I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about kind of the state of the IRC channel. I mean, uh, in terms of what was, you know, was it very busy? Where Was it hard? I mean, was there sort of a natural kind of person doing coordination? Was it hard to jump in and get involved because there were a lot of people? What, what was it like? Was it kind of panic or was it not panic? I'd say it's really easy to get going and, and get involved. Uh, we had lots of people that were joining and wanting to help out. People that uh, either had worked with the RubyGems project in the past or people who you know saw that it was down and thought, oh, I've got cycles, I'll, I'll help with this. There was a couple people coordinating, making sure 
things were staying on task. Sam did a pretty good job of that. I think Luke, you 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 did some of that as well, right? Yeah, I I did a bunch of that. It turned into really a cycle of sort of following the clock. So I I did it during the Australian daylight hours and mm-hmm. made sure that stuff was handed off to the next person when I had to go leave and. So from start to end, if you were to to talk about the incident span, how long did that fully take? Was it about 36 hours, I think I remember? Is that about right? Yeah, so, so I think it's important to actually remember that there were kind of these two unique processes going on. One of them was there were a bunch of people... Uh, and I think Luke might have been involved with this. I wasn't, and I don't think Joshua was either. But there was this gem verification process going on, so making sure that none of the shawsums of the gems had actually changed to make sure that the code was all... There was no compromise. You know, this, right, so just, right. just to make sure that everything was healthy on that side. And then there was the infrastructure stuff. So they actually ended up lining up fairly well in terms of when stuff got done. So we started Wednesday night, and I think rubygems.org relaunched on Saturday morning. So probably two and a half days. Okay, so so a weekend. I I, I think uh, the infrastructure was ready probably a little bit before the the gem verification. And then it was just getting sort of sign-off from Evan and far as making sure that it was ready to go. So let me ask that because that's actually a really interesting issue. You said these two processes were going in parallel. Did you find there was kind of a group of people that – did people naturally sort of segment themselves into – two groups working on those projects kind of separately to get them going as quickly as possible? Or was there sort of more overlap between the two? Yeah, I mean, since I, I think people kind of naturally home to the things that they're good at. So the people who are more on the crypto side worked on gem verification and and the infrastructure people and, and the ops code folks who did amazing work here, and they really contributed a lot. But the ops code folks and some infrastructure people kind of worked more on the infra side. So I don't think it was kind of like, hey, we're one big group and then let's split into two it was more like hey people joined you know either the ruby gems aws irc channel or they joined the ruby gems verification irc channel and the two groups kind of naturally figured themselves out more so than one big group starting out oh so that's really interesting you actually self-split into different irc channels to get the different parts of the project done yeah, the, the main the main Ruby Gems IRC channel was getting really really loud, and it was kind of hard to track what was going on. So verification actually split off before we even decided that we were going to rebuild the infrastructure, and kind of said, "Hey, these are you know the five people who are going to work heavily on verification." And then there were some people who who wanted to work on infrastructure stuff, and so then ultimately we set up a channel as well. But it was it was interesting because we would create a new channel like when Nick and I created Ruby Gems verification right away, like. 40, 50 people flooded into the channel. And then when we created the AWS <laughs> channel, same thing happened. So it was it was pretty interesting to see how many people were kind of on looking, and it's a pretty prominent project, so it's, it's right. interesting to have people yeah. kind of jump in. Well, certainly it sounds too like all of the articles that kind of talked about this or, or kind of the, the, twi- the tweet stream that was talking about this, I mean, it, it really had a huge impact, and it was kind of interesting to see the media coverage of it had to explain, like, no, you don't actually understand how... I mean, I think developers understood the impact, but you don't understand how many sites are actually using RubyGems and how dangerous this kind of issue could be. So it's not surprising that the second you created a different IRC channel that somebody was doing a who is on the prominent people talking to you, oh, there's a channel over here, you know, and everybody kind of flocks because they're all kind of wanting information. Right, yeah, it was kind of funny because I, w- I would tweet about, like, hey, we're, we're at X step in the process, and a friend who works at a pretty big media company was like, hey man, we can't provision any new machines because RubyGems.org is down. Could you like hurry up? And it's funny because like 
you really don't find out how many people really actually rely on the core infrastructure being up until you get <laughs> emails from people who are like really desperate and it's a really big company. Um, yeah. So that was kind of an, an enlightening thing to me because I kind of live in a little bubble where everything is packaged in RPM. So <laughs> Yeah, and it's, it's fun to note that the rubygems.org app, you can build and run it yourself. The Chef repo that we that we worked off of was was one that was somebody's mirror of RubyGems.org. So, oh, interesting. So you know, you, and can did stand, you you can stand up the app yourself too. So you can make your own RubyGems mirror for running you know whatever gems you need. So I think that that's a pretty interesting lesson for for folks that you know if you rely on third party services and this kind of outage can can bring down your whole site because you can't deploy apps. You know, standing up a new mirror is relatively straightforward. So that's actually an interesting point that you made. Like, so did you use the mirror because you felt that that would be like a more pristine copy, or you know that 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 one wasn't, or at least there wasn't proof that that one had been attacked? And was that the thinking, or was it just Ooh, this? We have access to this; it's the easiest thing to do. Was so there... it was? Uh, I don't remember whose uh, repository we started with. Was that yours, Luke, or was it somebody else's? Uh, no, I think it was Phil Cohen's, as far as the, the okay. chef. Uh, yep, yep, but I'm, it was not, his. I'm not certain. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was it was Phil's, and and he he was running his own Ruby Gems mirror that was like completely orthogonal to to the incident. Okay. Well, actually, so the the repo we started out with wasn't wasn't a Ruby Gems mirror. It was it was basically Phil's like work repo, and they just happened to use a pretty similar stack. Oh, okay. Yeah. So so they they like were running Rails on top of Postgres, and it's a, it's such a standard stack that he was like, yeah, totally. hey, I have this really really nice and well written cookbooks and all this stuff here. Take them and kind mm -hmm. of go from there. And so that was that was really great of him. And he had to strip out some certs and all that stuff from his job. But yeah, they I don't know what company he works for, but they were really nice to us and they gave us kind of the getting started point. Yeah, so. okay. Yeah, that's what I get for not having been right from the beginning. You were busy working the problem at the time. So, yeah. but, but it but, sounds like you know, that it, it was a place to start and that somebody had done that infrastructure work for their mirror and so it was like, hey, we're donating these cookbooks well, yeah, for, to get for, you up and For running. their Rails app, right? But yeah, I mean, okay. now, now that the, the Chef repository is public, I mean... And of course, the Rails, the Ruby Gems Rails app itself is public. You could stand up a mirror, and in in doing the development and testing of of the Chef code to redeploy the application and all the components, you know, we've we've got in that repository some stuff for setting it up with Vagrant, and there's a there's also some instructions for setting it up with uh, EC2. So you you could stand up your own uh, RubyGems.org and run that. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the the high level stages of of the project and kind of uh, where where you started. So you know if you're if you're like somebody if somebody were to come to you and say, hey, I've been hacked and I, you know we, we need to solve this problem and we want to actually do a little work to make this sustainable in the future and, and and take a fresh look at it and look at the automation. What are the stages of that project and what were the stages of this? You know what's kind of the first initial lay of the land that you get and then how did you kind of break it out so that people could work on parallelizable things and kind of what were those things? Yeah, so so it actually started in a way that we didn't expect it to end. So it, it started early. I'm in Eastern time in the U.S., uh, but it started pretty early that day, so it was probably like 10 a.m., if my memory serves me correctly. And around that time, basically people were just starting to come in. They had seen stuff off Twitter, whatever had happened, 
and they kind of started to get involved, and people really wanted to be able to kind of figure out what was going on. So, like, I kept offering, hey, I have, like, an OpenStack cluster. Does anyone want instances to do verification stuff? And kind of there were just a few core people who were working really intently on figuring out the scope of the problem. And so that's where the incident response really started is kind of understanding where things begin and, and kind of understanding where what's impacted, where could this attacker have gone, People knew the, the you know, it wasn't really that kind of secret of an attack. The, the attacker, or I guess the exposure of the attack vector, uh, kind of talked up really quickly. So people knew, hey, this is what happened. But you can't always trust that. So, you know, gem verification began. Sure. Um, Quick question. Was yeah. this uh, attacker uh, who did this, was it sort of a... Would you say he's white hat or black? Was it was it more bragging about? Oh, hey, I did this, or was it like, oh crap, I was able to do this? Yeah. So, so I the person, who, the person, the person who did it is is a pretty well known Ruby security person okay. uh, who had submitted a security issue, and I guess it had kind of gotten put onto the back burner, and so this was displaying that it was a real attack vector. Yeah, um, this is serious. You need to pay attention. Yeah. So, so I think that makes that person a gray hat kind of person. Okay. Um, they. They've also worked on some really, really great Ruby security stuff in the community. So I don't think what they did was, and I don't think anyone faults them for what they did because it actually ended in a in a pretty good thing happening. Right. Um, but yeah, it's definitely you know, it's not a completely white hat action to actually use an exploit. Um, right. But yeah. So, so you were saying, so you were saying that th this attack happened, and then you one of the first parts that you were looking at is is sort of the entry vectors and what could have changed because you you never know, and especially if somebody had exploited it, maybe somebody else who was more of a black hat actually exploited it and didn't tell anyone, right? So that was that was where you guys were right. at the beginning, is kind of looking at that stuff. Right. Exactly. So so then people kind of and I suggested earlier in the day, like, hey guys and gals, you know. There may be, you know, we may want to actually rebuild this thing and really. I think you. I think at, at that point you really have to start from fresh machines. It's, it, that's fairly standard for an intrusion like that. The machines have to go. So at that point yeah, it becomes a problem like because everything was hand rolled, and uh, okay. then we're into, and then we're back into, you know, rebuilding from shareflow, what we talked about before. So. Well, so let me ask this: Was there anybody on the team that was? Uh, had any insight into that or had maybe 60% of the picture or 80% of the picture in terms of what was done originally or was a lot of it sort of let's take the cookbook from the mirror that and, and then sort of try to match the environments? Yeah, so so Evan Phoenix and uh, Nick Coranto, who were kind of the two RubyGems.org people before the attack, and there are some other people who work more on the app, but they were the two who worked on the infrastructure, kind of had the best overview, particularly Evan, because Evan set a lot of it up. And Evan had kind of started setting up repos to kind of publish Nginx configs and stuff like that, but it was never really fully managed because he is a manager at Living Social, so he's really, really busy. But yeah, he that was kind of the starting point, and people quickly realized what we needed and what was running. So they had a they had a good picture, but they didn't. You know, I don't think either of them knew the full extent of where things things stood or how different tools necessarily interacted. Because one person had set one up and the other didn't necessarily know about it, or they didn't know how this service was running. Blah blah blah. Just just small things. Um, but but it sounds like I mean we all hear those stories, right? That that's the pretty standard story that you need to get something up and then 
you're busy with something else and then it sort of takes, it snowballs, it takes a life of its own because it's so useful and then that knowledge sort of accretes. It's a pretty common uh, right. problem, right? right? So, yeah. so I, but I, I think people kind of were initially not that fond of having to rebuild the infrastructure but then I, people started saying like, hey, you really should do this and you really should do it right and then the idea kind of caught on and and people really started working on it. The there were there are a few people who have access to the actual AWS account. So like I provisioned some some new nodes, set up the EBS volumes, all that stuff, uh, and then we kind of got got working on actually getting stuff running. Okay, and then you had mentioned uh, you mentioned a couple times that there's a GitHub repository uh, for all of this work, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But that's like people that want to see that work can um, look at the the actual recipes in GitHub. That's is that correct? Uh, yep. And yeah. as as uh, Joshua said, you can actually, if you use Vagrant, you can actually just clone that repo, CD into it, and then run Vagrant up, and you'll be able to stand up an entire environment. Okay. Which is worth mentioning, because we actually got that working before we were able to access Amazon. So we, we had it set up so that you could run it locally, so we could test our theories about how it would work before yep. we could get into the Amazon account. Okay, so so yeah, we'll we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. But uh, that's actually an interesting point. So, and that that actually is uh, the kind of great answer to second part of my question, which is so you've got kind of got the lay of the land. So then we've got the donated cookbooks that you're starting to kind of look at and pull apart. And so then it sounds like you tried to replicate that in an environment using Vagrant, so that you that was your kind of dev test environment while other people were, Sam, it sounds like you were kind of getting the AWS set up ready, but that's how you were able to work on the cookbooks is, is Vagrant. Is that is that accurate or is that right? Yep, yep. Yeah. So what was a lot of the development work on the cookbooks? I mean, what kind of stuff did you find it was having to, to modify to bring it from someone's cookbooks that were donated in their from their kind of work environment to something that's like the open source community site? What, what were a lot of the things that you had to work on? Well, it was a custom, customized application setup for the way that Phil had done his own Rails app. So we, we had to adapt it for all the nuances of RubyGems, like where things were going to live, the names of the databases, you know, those, those kinds of things, adjusting attributes, moving things into attributes rather than hard-coding values, and that, you know, just some, some typical refactoring. Okay. Yeah, and, and a lot of the stuff that I worked on was more on the performance side, so, you know, getting Postgres tuned up for the kind of instances we were running on, getting Redis using the right amount of RAM, figuring out when Redis should flush to disk, just all that kind of stuff that just that just requires you to actually know things about the environment that you're going to ultimately be running in. So when you were doing that work, that sounds like you wouldn't be doing that on a Vagrant setup locally because the settings you're modifying have to do with the environment. So were you kind of testing that or developing that on the Amazon side of things? Or were you using Vagrant? So what I, what I would do is I would actually uh, I would make the change on Amazon, test it out, you know, do whatever I needed to do to get Postgres restarted using the new settings. Uh, and then I would make the change in the cookbook and run it over the the initial settings just to make sure that they were there. Don't do that at home, but yeah, <laughs> that's how it happened here. Okay. okay. I, I think I think once the actual app was up and working in a basic format in Vagrant, we moved on to actually tuning it and, and working within Amazon for the final stage of it, mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that. That, that couldn't be done within really. Okay, so the next question I had, which may, maybe it's the last phase of it, was what, what kind of testing did you do on the environment, or did you feel you needed to do to, to 
know that it was at least as close enough as you had intended to the original environment or that you could explain the changes? You know, what, what was that? Was that the last stage or was there a stage kind of in between getting it up on Am- standing it up on Amazon and then going from there? Or where, where are we in the story right now? Yeah, so I actually used a pretty great tool that my friend uh, James Dennis wrote, which is called MicroArmy, to help load test a lot of the initial stuff. So, you know, shooting a bunch of traffic at the app, going through different pages. Uh, it actually just uses a bunch of T1 micro AWS instances and Siege and just does remote control over Paramico, which is the Python SSH library. And so that was a really, really useful thing to kind of get a feel for the load. I'm not sure what, what others did in terms of load testing because I actually ended up having to go offline Friday night. But, yeah, that's that's kind of how I did the initial Postgres tuning and initial WebS tuning. I didn't do much of uh, of testing the app running or anything. I was making sure, from my perspective, the chef cookbooks were doing the right thing, like in the, in the Vagrant environment and in my own. Ops code has an open stack cluster, so I was using that for testing instances. So it was totally isolated away from the EC2 stuff. Okay, so so actually, then I'm curious. Like, it's I mean, were, was there any sort of verification or testing on the cookbooks that you were doing, or that you'd recommend people do in, in cases like this, just to make sure? I mean, like any tools that that uh, would help with this sort of stuff, or? Well, this this was an incident response, so it was very much a get everything going as fast as possible, and yeah. write, writing a bunch of things in a test framework isn't necessarily the fastest way to get them actually deployed, so. Uh, we had a number of people that were getting getting their environment set up so that they could contribute to the cookbooks, but mainly folks were just running Vagrant up to get the, st- the site stood up on in the Vagrant instances, and you know the the, the testing was actually running the tool because that's the only way you're re- really actually going to know that it's working. People were running Vagrant up all the time, and new people were coming and they wanted to help with one little thing and then be done. Um, so that was that was a pretty interesting way that that we tested was like. Hey, I just ran Vagrant up from head on the repo, and something's broken. And then it was like, mm-hmm. all right, let's go fix it. So that yep. that was yeah, a think good as, way to test, actually. As far as the customer sign-off went with Nick and Evan, it was taking them through and making sure they could do the deployment using the tools yep. that we'd written as well. So, so that really signed off. The cookbooks did what they were supposed to do. Yeah, got got the system to the state where they they could do their actual deploy. Okay, so that was sort of the acceptance test for them, for the for the customers. It's, it sounds yeah. like those guys those guys were the customer and, and that was, was how you handled that. Okay. Okay. Well actually that brings up a good point. I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about I mean, Joshua, you said that uh, this is an incident response and mm-hmm. so we're you know, we're we're doing things a little differently. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of the operational nature of this particular project because Moving an entire site and and also automating it in the span of a weekend, trying to get it back up when big companies that rely on it are down and people are kind mm-hmm. of constantly asking questions. You already talked a little bit about this. You said talked about splitting people into groups, splitting communication channels into groups. But I was wondering if you could all talk a little bit about how you handled sort of roles and responsibilities, how you coordinated handoffs between people. You already talked a little bit about the customer acceptance, but was all the communication IRC and or were there other, you know, just talk a little bit about the, the incident response side of it and what you found interesting about that or what was useful? Sure. The, you know, the the main thing was that we had people that were taking charge and keeping folks on track. Luke and Sam did, did that, as, as we mentioned before, about following working hours kinds of things. 
and it, it's it's as much a disaster recovery scenario as anything else. So in in a DR, you generally have people breathing down your neck trying to get uh, everything up and running as fast as possible because you know there's people waiting to deploy and wanting to push gems and all these other th- other things going on. So you know there's a lot of pressure coming in from a lot of, a lot of angles, but mainly um, communication primarily happened over IRC. Folks were using Google Hangouts for live discussion when when required to to do coordination that needed a little more higher bandwidth than than text chat, especially with the number of folks that were in the that were in the channel. You know, and, and the main thing was making sure that if somebody had to leave, that whatever it was that they were working on was either finished up and, and wrapped up, or that they'd ha- if it wasn't, it was handed off to somebody who could who could carry it along. And do you have any recommendations or lessons learned about the, actually a handoff? Because sometimes that can actually be, it seems like it's a really simple thing, but it, it turns out sometimes it can actually be, there's lots of room for confusion there sometimes. Did you find, you know, was there, I don't want to say a formal process, but did you kind of find a, a way to do that? Or, or did you find people were so sort of engaged it didn't, it, that wasn't really necessary? Uh, folks were uh, engaged. I, yeah, I, I think we, we did it really well, and it was just how, making sure that, when when you handed it off, that there was actually somebody that was responsible for making sure that whoever was working on stuff handed it off before they left. So there was always a, a controller, if you like, making sure that mm-hmm. that stuff was coordinated. And when they had to leave, they handed off that role to somebody else as well. Well, you know, I love the air traffic controller analogies in uh, in DevOps and release engineering. So you. You got me there. I totally get that. And it's and it sounds like that somebody was playing that sort of air traffic coordination yeah. role. Yeah, there, there was – so there was – that role was actually pretty natural because there were only a few people who had access to the AWS infrastructure, and there's still only a few people who have that access. So that person naturally kind of filled the role of like, hey, I need this thing done. All right, who's working on this now? This is how stuff is running on the new infrastructure. XYZ kind of needs to be implemented uh, so that that role kind of got naturally filled by people who had the the right access, uh, okay. which was a pretty interesting thing to watch. The other way that we did this was kind of always spitting out what was what we were doing into the channel. So instead of at the end of a ten hour day saying, "Hey, I just worked on Redis for ten hours. This is where it stands," it was more like, "Hey, I've been working on X little thing for Redis." And then everyone knows where you stand, and you don't need to do this giant brain dump at the end of it. And you said that, Joshua, you, you linked to the, the incident log document. So it sounds like people were also recording information in a Google Doc that could be reviewed, and, and those are automatically versions, so you could go back and look at history if something got deleted or, or changed, and you needed that information. So that was also kind of how coordination worked as well, it sounds like? A bit, yeah. Uh, Nick Caronto was was updating that for the most part throughout while they're doing the verification and you know there's some quick status updates probably about every half hour or so by the looks of it you know as I was actively involved in the IRC channel I wasn't reading you know I wasn't watching the document plus you know it was as the as the link will say this file is really popular so <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a lot well, of people that were looking at it. One of the other funny incident response things that kind of happened was I work at Red Hat um, and. I didn't realize this, uh, which was kind of funny, but I ended up talking on IRC with a bunch of other Red Hatters who were talking about, they, they did mem- some, they looked at the memory on some of the boxes to see the impact of, of what was happening. So the Red Hat security response team that does this kind of stuff all the time was working on that, which was kind of funny to like realize, hey, we both work at Red Hat. That was another aspect of what was going on. 
there was a the Red Hat security team was looking at the compromised boxes and figuring out what was happening and going. Okay, so so that was actually kind of happening back channel as well to sort of help understand scope of the problem. Yeah, so, some people kind of found out about it and and were working on it. Okay. So yeah, you you'll actually find a bunch of those notes in the Google Doc as well. Okay. Well, actually, so that that's a great segue to my my next question, which was, uh, did any of you kind of learn uh, anything from the security side of the house by working this incident? Did you learn you know uh, learn any lessons about like how you should or shouldn't do security, or just based on what you had to automate and what wasn't automated, or or anything any good kind of security lessons for for us? Uh, I, I can say that it reiterated the fact that shared secrets are hard in order to make sure that, that certain people had access to be able to you know, manage the EC2 instances and work with those, manage the EBS volumes and load balancers, uh, update DNS configuration, that sort of thing. You know, that, that, there's a lot of sensitive information that goes along with that that's orthogonal to the application, right? Yeah, which, have that which, there, is, but... which you can't store in the Git repository. So, so transferring those... Those shared secrets, the SSL certs, for instance, was one of the, the real problems with, with enabling people to actually deploy the, the code. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about Luke, but I know Joshua and I are both kind of, we work on distributed companies, and so, like, these are problems that are not solved, and I think that was one of the things that we learned is, like, hey, let's get on Gchat and do an OTR session so that we can talk about how to get me some IAM credentials and all that kind of stuff going right. was was pretty interesting to watch. Uh, I also use GPG encrypted emails for a lot of kind of talking to different people about things that were very sensitive. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah, and that sounds like uh, a lot of times too something that people forget because you always see certs or passwords sent, you know, and I see this in release engineering all the time sent across email and it's not encrypted and so you don't you know it's not encrypted and there's no verification that it came from who it, who it says it came from, so uh, I think you, you hit the, the nail there on the head, Sam, when you said this is not a solved problem, or it, it, even though it seems like it would be or should be by now. Yeah, I think it's a lot easier when you're at a company because everyone there, at least in theory, is working towards a common goal, right? Everyone, you, you kind of have this bar that you know everyone is doing at least some amount of good, and you don't necessarily have that in an open source community where it's like, hey, I just joined this NRC channel and I really want to help, and you don't know the person. Right. Um, and that makes it orders of magnitude more difficult to actually verify, is this person really trying to help out, or are they trying to get access to the RubyGems.org boxes? Right. Um, mm-hmm. So that was, we actually didn't really run into that issue, but at the same time, it's something that you kind of have to think about, and it, it has to be present when you're working on a lot of this stuff. It's well, and like, there's not... At a company, you have shared infrastructure like email and right, right. and stuff like that. Whereas you were saying you used OTR conversations, a lot of people use Gmail, and that's not to suggest that Gmail itself is insecure, but it's it's a mishmash of infrastructures, and therefore you don't have that kind of base level of trust like you were talking. Yeah, about. yeah, and I mean, like a lot of these tools are just inherently insecure. Like email is an inherently insecure system, and it's not hard to make an email look like it came from someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, or route an email to go somewhere else. So that's that's definitely a problem. GPG helps a lot with that kind of verification and encryption. So yeah, that's that's a tool that I use every day and love. So yeah. definitely a good one for passing around data and uh, and kind of securing and and dealing with sensitive info. So one of the things DevOps organizations love to do, uh, what would you do differently? What mistakes would you confess in this process that you can help us, the rest of us avoid? Take security notices seriously when people submit, when people submit <laughs> issues to you. 
take them seriously and fix them. And you know, I before I worked at Red Hat, I worked at at a big kind of money transaction company that did mobile payments, and and there, you know, tell people when you're going to fix a problem that you know that the problem exists and all that kind of stuff, so that it never rises to the level where someone feels like they need to do this to you because it's such they an need important to, issue. And they need so to prove I think a point. That, or... That's like the base. Base problem, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't actually see that many mistakes. And maybe Joshua and Luke have have a different perspective on this, but I don't think I didn't see that many mistakes in the way we actually implemented it, which is pretty impressive. When a bunch of people who kind of loosely know each other, probably only from Twitter or you know the, their companies and their open source communities, kind of come together and and build something that's this kind of widely used. Well, yeah. So, so I actually want to interject here real quick. Maybe I chose my words poorly because mistakes is not necessarily what I mean as well. I mean, because there's always. I mean, this is an amazing story. Obviously, that you had all of these people coming together to fix this infrastructure. But also, sounds like there's always Monday morning quarterbacking about I could have done that better. It didn't cause an outage. It didn't really cause a problem. But it's like, oh, for next time, in the heat of a security incident response, we should really do this, do it this way, because that would have saved us two hours. Uh, so maybe mistakes was the wrong word. Are there are there anything like that as well too that that you're like uh, you know we could have been more efficient if, if we'd known X Y Z that comes to mind. I, I think we were pretty all right on that front. I think really there's there's a lot of work that still needs to be done, and there's a lot of imperfections in in how it was left even after we were finished. But we we did the right thing in not trying to fix all of those things as well. Yeah. One of the biggest lessons learned is, of course, have a disaster recovery scenario and, you know, practice it. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, and it know. sounds like that's that's actually really good advice. As part of the disaster recovery scenario, scope what you're going to fix. Scope what you're focused on because you mentioned this earlier. Some people are like, well, you know, maybe we can do all these other things while we're redoing the infrastructure. And it sounded like it was a very tactical decision to read entirely redo certain things, but not entirely redo other things. And making those decisions in the moment is often hard. So it sounds like that's yeah, it's, actually, it's actually something. We actually kind of did that as a bike shed prevention measure. Like everyone has their favorite rack server, right? So like it was really done more in a way to prevent, you know, hey, I really want to use Thin. Oh, I really want to use Puma. Oh, I really want to use Passenger. More so than like a we don't have time for this. It was really just a time, like, we don't have time for this discussion. And rubygems.org, you know, minus the security issues, had, you know, was running relatively fine before the incident. So so that decision was, was pretty pivotal, I think. And if we hadn't gone with that, I think things would have been a lot harder to get done. So well, it increases, it increases risk as well, changing the stack when you try to do a recovery, that, that things aren't going to work. So it sounds like the upshot is don't bike shed during a security incident response. Right. I mean, like, have a plan and know what know what's next and then go from there. And I think the other thing is, like, generally, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I think that's generally, like, a particularly good principle while you're basically inside of an emergency. Yep. Yeah. Okay, well, let me ask this. I mean, you guys, and again, one of the reasons this story is so amazing is you guys did this all... Uh, over the course of, sounds like a weekend, if you had to do it again and it wasn't this huge emergency situation, how long would you estimate that it would take to uh, move and, and chef and automate? Uh, you know, you, you described for us uh, sort of the three instances and the stack and then, you know, maybe actually if you had data like the gems and wanted to verify that. If you weren't under the gun, uh, how long do you think it would take if somebody said it came to you and kind of 
hired a group to do that? Uh, what, what kind of, how many people and how long, uh, if, it were you, if you weren't under the gun? Um, we've built out uh, fully automated Ruby on Rails application stacks with Chef in anywhere from a week to a couple of weeks, you know, depending on the complexity of the application and how many people need to be involved in in sign off and everything else. Okay. So you know, I mean, that, that's that's t- you know, taking your time, being careful, doing proper testing that is going to be using test frameworks and getting things set up in the managed infrastructure sense of the, the word, where you have like a Jenkins build for running tests automatically on commit and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah right. I, I would say I would say a couple weeks probably. Yeah, including the migration. Okay. So okay. I mean, it. it just remember also, like, this isn't, this wasn't anyone's full-time job. So, like, right. I was doing my, my, I guess, quote, real job, and then also doing this at the same time. So, yeah. interesting okay. balancing act there as well. Right, right. Now, you had mentioned um, some other people that were involved in the process and really helped out, and uh, some of those people weren't able to join us. Are there other people that, that uh, we should be <laughs> thanking for the Ruby Gems chefing and moving? I would I would just generally like to say thank you to Opscode because they had a bunch of people who were in the channel and helping out and Adam Jacobs who's a C level executive at Opscode was in the channel and like buying people pizza and just being generally great. So I think big shout out to Opscode. Um, yeah, they, Opscode really for helped. sure. Yeah. Um, and Mitchell uh, Hashimoto as well from Vagrant came and helped us get that issues set, uh, sorted out vagrant side as well. Great. Alright, Joshua, where can we find you on Twitter? I am uh, Jay Timberman. Alright, Luke? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm Virtus. Uh, okay. V-E-R-T-I-S. Alright, and uh, Sam? I'm uh, at Sam Kotler, so my first name and my last name smash together. S- super easy, sounds super easy. Alright. Yeah. <laughs> They're all pretty easy. Yeah, Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us on the Ship Show and thanks so much for your hard work. It's, again, an amazing story and uh, you, uh, if our audience has any uh, questions or anything, go ahead and tweet. You have their Twitter names. You have our Twitter name, Ship Show Podcast. Go ahead and tweet both of us, and and uh, we'll ch- we'll hunt them down and get them to answer it for maybe with some pizza or something or beer. Mm, All right, beer. thanks guys. So long. Thank you. And we'll be back in a moment here on the Ship Show. Welcome back to the Ship Show. So for our last segment tonight, we're going to do a tool tip uh, on a tool that helps with data visualization, which is a very big deal in DevOps, and, and certainly being able to look at all the metrics data you collect is uh, useful. The tool t- uh, that we're uh, reviewing tonight is a tool called Nagios TV. Can, we'll link to it. You can get it on GitHub. And it's a way to basically provide streaming Nagios alerts uh, either on a TV kind of mounted in your office, which is kind of a lot A lot of times we see various organizations and their like wall of TVs that show all of their metrics. That's uh, kind of uh, something that you commonly see. And so it basically provides connection between Nagios and a, a nice way to actually display that. It can provide uh, you a visual representation of Nagios. Uh, and of course, all of these uh, are color-coded. Uh, so it's, it's really great for being able to, A, kind of socialize the results of, of your infrastructure, so that you know people uh, when they when they're walking through the office can can see very uh, at a glance, you know what's what's going wrong, 
what's what's up, what's down, that sort of thing. The the interface is actually you can you can put it either it's designed to actually be displayed on a TV. But you can also use it at your desktop, and if you're doing that, it actually has links directly to uh, the Nagios alerts that you can click on. It's also uh, useful uh, more so than, than just showing you kind of at-the-moment status about uh, are all the services available, is everything fine. It'll actually give you the notification history, which actually from a visual representation of what's going on is kind of useful because you can see, you know, is this particular machine or service having a lot of problems or are the last time we got uh, notifications a month ago or something like that. Um, so it really uh, does a, a nice job of just kind of putting that information up in the forefront. A lot of times you see, you know, the metrics data is pretty graphs or big numbers. We all saw the social network where they had the big millionth user kind of thing. And it, this kind of brings that to Nagios. Uh, a lot of times Nagios is sort of considered kind of boring data or not as interesting, but to have it, uh, this does a really good job of sort of sprucing that up. Did you guys, I, we, we I sent a link in the, to you guys, did you uh, have a look, have a chance to look at the, uh, the picture? Yeah, I did. It looks pretty uh, interesting. I've actually seen a wall of these where there's like there were like four or five TVs and there was uh, just all of them had the Nagios alerts kind of going on. I think one of the the most amazing things that I saw was when there was an actual outage and like all the it, you know it was like war games like all the TVs started sort of turning red and the the screens obviously auto update so they kind of show you real time status in that regard right and so you could kind of see things turning red and I, and then there was another instance where things had turned red and then they had flapped so things went from like red to green back to green and to watch kind of the outage permeate through because they had different sort of monitoring stations, right? To watch things go down and go up or, or when one of the engineers is actually doing something on purpose so you expect the outage to happen. Uh, it's actually, that's one of the other things I didn't mention that's really nice. Sometimes if you've got, you know, an ops team that's working on something in, in particular and maybe somebody's working on something they didn't announce it or, or not everybody knows about it, at least this, this makes it kind of up and in your face. That stuff is happening, whether whether or not it's expected or not, and then you, of course you can react to it as necessary. Uh, like I said, we'll we'll go ahead and link to this in the show notes. Uh, it was developed by an individual named Chris Carey, uh, who has a bunch of other code uh, on his GitHub account related to uh, DevOps and monitoring, and you can take a look at it uh, on his page there. So uh, I wanted to bring up again. Uh, we we uh, keep talking about the events calendar. We keep putting uh, new events uh, on the calendar. Try to keep that updated. Of course, if there's uh, an event going on that's not there, uh, that's related to uh, build engineering and DevOps and release management, go ahead and let us know. Uh, we like to keep that up to date. Uh, Sasha, you mentioned uh, something that uh, we need to actually get added to the events calendar. Uh, what was the InfraCoders talk? Is that what it was? So I just started trying to bootstrap the Minneapolis and St. Paul InfraCoders meetup group. Okay. Which is basically, it was actually started up by Matt and David Lutze in, in Australia. Mm -hmm. And I, there are a couple of chapters already popping up here now, too. And basically what it is is... is it's kind of a, an offshoot of the of DevOps and configuration management and the idea that, that all your infrastructure should be code. And so it allows us to leave the DevOps meetups to more to focus less on tools and it allows us to actually talk about tooling and how we can manage those in a way that is consistent with the idea that it's actually code as well as infrastructure and stuff. So we just started that on Monday night. It was pretty awesome. We had about 10 people show up and, and I gave a little what is infracoding presentation, and mm -hmm. um, I'm really hoping that our next one is a little bit bigger. We're actually going to have 
a couple of demos at our next one. We're going to have a Sensu demo, and we are going to have a demo on using Vagrant and why it's the best thing ever to use for local workstation testing. So I'm excited. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds like it'll be a lot of fun. All right, well, go ahead and check that out, the events calendar, theshipshow.com slash events. And, of course, on Twitter, Shipshow Podcast, and email, via email, if you still email people, crew at theshipshow.com. We'll go to all of us. So from San Francisco, it's Paul Reed signing off. Minneapolis, this is Sasha Bates signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. And we'll see you all in a couple of weeks. Bye.